0: Romans chapter 12 this morning. Mm-hmm. Romans 12. We're going to be talking about authentic Christianity, uh, what that looks like in a life that is totally, fully surrendered to God. And um, so let's go ahead and look again at these two verses, and then we'll get started. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I read in the news some time ago about a man who was receiving a lot of attention for his unusual sacrifice. In fact, the selfless act was creating quite a bit of notoriety around the community. He was being called by local media as a hero. The reason Rob Smitty was at the receiving end of so much congratulation and attention was that he willingly donated one of his kidneys to a perfect stranger. According to news reports, Bob said that his motivation in doing this was to make his children proud. The trouble is, the ten-year-old, his 10 year old daughter was not impressed with his sacrifice. Amber said her father named, never came to see her or her mother, he never called, even on her birthday. Amber said, I don't think he's much of a hero at all. The case took an interesting turn as public documents showed that Rob had not made a child support payment to Amber's mother nearly a year. Can you imagine giving one of your kidneys to a perfect stranger while failing to provide for the needs of your own child? It's really not that remarkable. In fact, it's classic human nature. We like to define where we will act right, how we will look good, and what we will look like to whom and to what time, while at the same time avoiding the hard truth about ourselves. Making a good impression can seem or, or can be accomplished from a distance, but true authenticity is proven up close. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul lays out uh, great doctrines of the faith that we hold to our theology. He, uh, he goes through all this, and, and we can look at the first 11 chapters of Romans and, 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 and look where it's the justification of faith, or whether the, or the uh, origin of sin, eternal heaven and hell, sanctification, forgiveness, forgiveness, by grace, the election, predestination, evangelism. We can look at all these doctrines and the theology that is crammed, packed, full in, in, in Romans 1 through 11. And say, yeah, I agree with that. But what are you going to do with it? Because in Romans chapter 12, Paul shifts gears a little bit. He, he, he goes from more of a doctrinal education into a doctrinal application. It, it's more from principle to practice. It's taking all that that I have just told you, what Paul is saying, all this that I just went over. You have all the information, you have all the knowledge, now what? And that's where we have here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul is, is going to now look at this, and as Christians, we're going to be examined by our character, not with a telescope, but with the lens of a microscope. Are we really, truly living as we claim or have the knowledge that we say we do or or have? And so what we see here is what we're going to look at this morning is fully surrendering to God. And we're going to look at four areas of that. And the first is found here in verse one is the basis of surrendering. The basis of surrendering. Look what it says. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, what Paul is talking to here. I, I, I appeal, I, I beg of you, I plead of you. And he says, therefore, going back to everything that you, we have talked about in the first 11 chapters, all the doctrine, all the theology, you know it's there, we've talked about it. And based on that, I beg of you, I plead of you. And look what he says, by the mercies of God. Authentic Christian living living is motivated by gratitude, not guilt. Paul could have said, I plead of you by the law of God, by the justice of God, uh, not even by the fear of God. He says, I plead, I beg of you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What are those? What is the mercies of God? Well, he, he laid out... A lot of the mercies of God in the first eleven chapters, and if you are familiar with any of his writings, you can look at any of his his, his books and see the mercies of God, and even in the Old Testament, see the mercies of God. But what, here's just a few. What about the external mercies? The election, predestination, adoption, the redeeming mercies, atonement, reconciliation, justification, the saving mercies of God, regeneration and calling, repentance and faith. Uh, Conversion, and and what what about daily mercies of God? The providence, provision, the protection. The promised mercies of God. And death, and the resurrection, and glory. Paul is saying here, I, I, I plead, therefore, by the mercies of God. Think about what has God done for you. Let that be your motivation. To what? That's the basis of surrender. What about the act of surrendering? Look at the rest of the verse. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To to present your bodies, to offer your bodies, to to, to a willing offering of sacrifice. And the word "their bodies, has to do with the entire being, every part. It's it's your, your mind, your intellect. Your thoughts, your plans, your will, your dreams, your desires, our hopes, our frustrations, our disappointments, all, everything presented to Him. I like the story, maybe you've heard it, of a farmer who went into the barn and asked his animals to contribute something for his breakfast. The hens thought it was a great idea and said, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll do two eggs. We can do that. The cow thought, hey, this is a great idea. I, we'll do the milk. And then they looked over at the reluctant pig and said, well, well aren't you going to give something to our dear farmer? And the pig responded, well, that's easy for you to say. For you, it's a minor contribution, but for me, it's total commitment. We do not mind temporary contributions that can be replaced, but our attitude is a lot different when the contribution is to present God something that he may not give back or to yield something to him that he may never let us control or to offer something to him that he may never replace. Francis Hargill wrote what she called her hymn of consecration came to a crossroads in her life she had been a believer for decades but knew that there was something that she was holding back she was not fully giving every part of her life and her heart to god she made this quote she says i realized that there must be a full surrender before there can be satisfaction And with that, she wrote this poem, which later became a hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet, its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. What a a great poem of consecration. Giving all. God, I have nothing. This is my life. Take it. Every aspect of my life is yours. I lay the altar of sacrifice. And this is what Paul is talking about here. And he goes on to mention three ways of our offering to the Lord. It's here in the verse. It says alive, that it has to be alive. If you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see that when they made offerings to the Lord, it was alive, and then they killed it. It was dead, and they made the offering to the Lord. And then they would have to make it again. They had to go get something else and kill it and offer it to the Lord again and again and again. And God is saying, no, you are to be alive, a continual living offering unto the Lord. Howard Hendricks put it this way. And talking about alive, being alive, a living sacrifice to the Lord. He said the trouble with being alive is that we're constantly wanting to crawl down off the altar. How true is that? But how God is wanting us and desiring us to offer every part of our life to him. Being a living sacrifice continually. Not just on Sundays. Not just on one or two days a week. But every single day. Offering. Our life to him as a living sacrifice, not only that, but also as a holy sacrifice. Um, we're not going to go through the passages of the scripture, but uh, often all of, throughout the, the Bible, it talks about us being holy as he is holy and how important that is also to be an accept, uh, uh, acceptable um, sacrifice, one that is well pleasing. What does God desire for our worship? What does God desire for our sacrifice to him? No strings attached. Jesus is inviting the believer to sacrifice everything without negotiating the terms of surrender. But he's also asking the believer who will die for me. Not asking the believer who will die for me, but who will live for me. You can die a martyr's death in a one heroic act of faith. There have been many of our brothers and sisters who have done just that. But God most likely will not call most of us in here to that kind of death. But he is calling us to that kind of life. To live for him unconditionally. No strings attached. And we see here along in this verse... A live sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And other translations, it, it translates reasonable service, and they go hand in hand together. What should be our motive of worship? What is it? What should, what should motivate our worship? Can I tell you, It shouldn't be the music that we enjoy. As much as it is, it's great. I love our music. I love music in general. But that shouldn't motivate us to worship. What should motivate us in our worship to worship is right here in verse 1. I urge you, I plead, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. What has he done for us? He's so good to us. That is our motivation for worship. Worship is not an act we perform. It is the way we live. We live unto God. So we see the basis of our surrender, the act. And third, we see the means of surrendering. Look what it says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The New International Version translates it this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The King James says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message says, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And then finally, the New Living Translation, I believe, had a great handle on this verse. These verses here it says, don't copy the behavior and custom of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. If you like to underline or circle in your Bible, I would recommend you do the conformed, transformed and renewed. Renew. We're going to be looking at those two, three here, and we're in those three um, words. We're going to see a negative command, a positive command, and a plan of action. So let's look at the negative command here, be not conformed to this world. The verb conformed is a passive. In, in other words, it's saying here, don't allow yourself to be conformed by the world. I like J.B. Phillips' translation of this phrase. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. There, there, there should be something that's, that's different. Paul, if you're familiar with any of his writings, he battles this quite often. And in Acts chapter, I believe it's Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26, you can look at that sometimes. He's actually uh, talking to educated philosophers in Athens. About this very thing, about not conforming to the world, to the, to the traditions or to their th- way of thinking, which was prevalent during that time. And if you look at our generation, the society that we live in today, secularism is running rampant throughout our generation and through our culture today. And how easy it is to be conformed to what they are saying and what they're doing and just drift on and just drift in through and, and, and say, well, yeah, we, we can believe the same thing. Today our generation is, looks at evil as good and good as evil. If you come out and speak out against abortion, then you must hate women. If, if you're someone who thinks that marriage should be between a man and a woman, then you're a bigot. Something's wrong with you. You just need to get in line. This is 2019. And Paul is warning here, as he has throughout his other letters and other writings... No, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be influenced and allow yourself to go down this line. As a matter of fact, in Colossae, the church in Colossians, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 8, see, it, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather according to Christ. So we see here the negative command, don't be conformed. We see the positive command, but be transformed. Once again, this is a present imperative. You could write an exclamation point on the very ends of these commands. Paul, in essence, is saying, don't do that, do this. Don't think that way, think this way. In essence, is what he's saying. But understand, in order to be transformed, it's a process. It takes time. And in the generation and the culture that we're in today, that's hard. The way technology is, everything's so instant. It's so fast. We want it right now. And Paul is saying, no, that takes time. This, to be transformed is a process to go through. In the humorous book entitled America on Six Rubles a Day, the comedian Yavik Smirnoff wrote Coming from the former Soviet Union, I was not prepared for the incredible variety of products available American grocery stores. While on my first shopping trip, I saw powdered milk. Just add water and you get milk. I saw powdered fruit juice. Just add water and you get juice. I saw powdered eggs. Just add water and you get eggs. And then I saw baby powder. And I thought, wow, what a country. You know, you don't add water to powder and get a baby. But it's also not that easy in the transformation of a believer. It takes a lifetime. And Paul is saying here to be transformed. The Greek word there, metamorphosis, is where we get our, our, our word metamorphosis. So it's obviously it's that of you think of. Um, first thing that comes to my mind is that of a caterpillar, which in time turns into a butterfly, a cocoon and then a butterfly. And that's the kind of the idea and that's the picture that Paul is painting here for us to grasp and to understand that it's a process. It's something that takes time to develop and to, and to come in fruition, to mature as, as, as Christians in the faith. But how do we do that? How do we break free from the cocoon? Paul answers that in this verse. Look what he says. He says, by the renewing of your mind. To renew our minds, in the words of one Bible teacher, is like deleting old files from a computer, completely erasing their presence, and in their place, loading new files that come from Scripture through which the Holy Spirit refashions our minds. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Literally, he is saying, allow the word of Christ to take up residency inside of you, opening your mind to its wisdom. You cannot be transformed unless you're informed. And again, that goes against our verbal, audio-driven culture. I came across some statistics that were pretty fascinating, and these are somewhat old, so it it could be even higher than what I'm saying to you this morning. But 42% of university graduates never read an entire book after graduation. 80% of America families did not buy or read a book last year, and 57% of new books purchased in the United States are not read to completion, and most readers do not pass page 18 in a book. Uh, uh, They do not buy themselves. It concluded with this summary. The majority of people living in our generation today prefer to listen to someone they perceive to be trustworthy, to give them information, Than to read it for themselves. So apply that to the church. And it translates into believers driving across town. In their car. To get under the sound preaching and teaching of God's word. Without ever walking across their living room floor. To get into the study of God's word. We see here that Paul is challenging Timothy, if you read Timothy, he's challenging Timothy in this very area. In Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the the sound doctrine which you have been following. In the next verse, in verse 7, he says, Discipline or train yourself for the purpose of godliness. The word there, train, is gnuzo. It's where we get our, our word gymnasium you you can you you can decide to try to get in shape but you will never get in shape by deciding he, he what he's telling what he's telling Timothy here is you don't try to live for God to live a godly life it's something that you train for it's something that takes training and dedication and surrender now fourthly and lastly, let's look at the verse again and we we'll see the result of surrendering. It says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we see here, he shifts gears a little bit, and he, t- he, t- he brings it all to a uh, end. He brings it all together. And we see here, the characteristics of the will of God and something I'm going to look at in closing here um, this morning. But if you'll take a look, there are three characteristics of the will of God. First, we see that it is good. It is good. To, To call the will of God good and choose to follow God's will as something considered good, it will require divine perspective. It will require divine perspective. Look at the life of Joseph in Genesis. Here's a man who was hated by his brothers. They wanted to kill him. They ended up trading him away to slaves, selling him to slaves to be a slave. He was a conv- convicted sex offender. He was accused of, of and rape. He, di- he didn't do it. Obviously, he was innocent. He got thrown into prison. And it was in prison. You could imagine everything that was going through his mind. And it was in prison that he eventually got out. And he be- eventually became, um, rose to the political ranks of that of Egypt and became prime minister. And his wisdom saved the empire from famine. And his brought his brothers to come and join him. Who were afraid of him? By the way, thought that he was going to get revenge. That he was going to take revenge on them and kill them. That never came. Instead, he went and got his dad, J- Jacob, and brought him. And you remember the story? After Jacob died, his brothers were terrified. Well, this is it. Daddy's gone now, and now we're to ourselves. And he's going to kill us. He's going to. He's going to. He's going to come for us. I mean, we deserved it. Look at all we've done, we did to him. But do you remember what Joseph said? He says, do not be afraid for am I in the place, or for am I in God's place? What he's saying is literally saying, am I not in God's will? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? That takes a divine perspective. And that's why Paul, in effect, saying here, the ability to call God's will good is based on the condition of having your mind renewed. Radically altered by the word of God. So we see here that God's will is, is good, but also we see that it's is, is, uh, acceptable. Uh, that it's well-pleasing. And not only that, but it's also perfect. Uh, that is, that it is complete and mature. And then in closing, I'm going to give two thoughts about the will of God. The will of God is not a matter of revelation. it's a matter of resignation, resignation. It's not walking through life, wanting to be big, uh, wanting that big, flashy thing in the sky to tell you this is right or this is wrong I love Martin Luther the converted monk of many centuries ago the way he put it this is what he said he says this life is not godliness but the process of becoming godly it is not health but eventually getting well it is not, it is not being but becoming and this life is not a place of rest but exercise we are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. And then, second, and in closing, the will of God is not found in a place, but in our person. I remember hearing a story years ago of two young men who were both talented singers. One was a tenor and the other was a deep baritone. Both were believers and were working at a radio station together, singing Christian music. It was not long before their talents were discovered and by, the secular, by the secular world, and both young men were offered lucrative or extremely well-valued contracts. One of the men signed the contract and turned his back on the vestment and talents of following after Christ using his talents for him and the other decided to follow Christ and what that might lead the one who signed the contract and went in his own way was never heard of again he never made it big but the one who chose to sing for Christ has sung before millions of people in the world all over the world his name is George Beverly Shea he's old now and but he's He was well known for traveling with Billy Graham for over 60 years. And it's not ironic that George Riverly Shea wrote the music to a hymn that became just as famous, and it was entitled, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And I believe you could say that it summed up the goal of his life and decision that he made many years ago to pursue what was good, acceptable, and perfect. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or to be inheld in sin's dragged away. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's really the question that we all have to answer. Could we say that this morning? You know, we could have all the knowledge of all the doctrine, get our theology right, and then miss out on this, on living a true, authentic Christian life, fully, fully surrendered to God. I, I started to say committed to God, but I changed it because I, I feel like how many times do we make commitments that we don't keep? I'm, I'm going to commit to, to getting in shape. I'm going to commit to doing this. I'm going to commit to doing that. And it lasts but for a little while. God wants more than our commitments. He wants everything. He wants us to totally surrender our life. Yield to him. offer our life as a living sacrifice. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you would forgive us where we have Maybe gotten our doctrine, our theology correct, but maybe have not yet fully yielded and surrendered our life, a living sacrifice continually, daily for you. And until then, I'm afraid that our Christianity will be shallow. It will not be deep. It will not be mature. We will live a life of apathy. And Lord we desire, our desires to live a life of authenticity, something that's real, and I pray God that you would help us to do just that to get into your word daily, to hear from you and allow the spirit of God to do its work in and through us, that which we cannot do and Lord we just love you and thank you for who you are, we thank you for your mercies that are new each and every morning, each and every day we thank you for for that thank you for your goodness Christ and we pray